Hello Video Insiders, uh, today we've got a slightly special, no not slightly special, a very special episode and a very special guest, our first ever guest on the Video Insiders podcast, but before I introduce the guest, I have to introduce my most glamorous of co-hosts, Carlos Pacheco. How's it going, Carlos? It's going great. How are you? Yes, very, very well. I'm so jealous that you got to do this interview. We'll start the teasing right now. So our interview this week is with founder and CEO. Does he have any other titles? Master of YouTube, I guess, maybe. <laughs> Master <laughs> of YouTube. Um, Ashkan Karbas Frushin. Who is basically the figurehead and genius behind the Watch Mojo YouTube empire and general media company. Um, someone who I have admired uh, for years. Uh, actually first got in contact with Ash back in my BBC days quite a few years ago. Um, had the pleasure of meeting him a couple of times, had lunch with him in London, and then went and met him when um, they launched Watch Mojo UK at the YouTube space. Super smart guy. Like so smart. Not only understands the YouTube space and how to run a YouTube channel, but in terms of legal parameters around fair use and just, you know, how to run a kick-ass media company. So jealous that you got to do this interview without me. Um, so I'm really <laughs> looking forward to hearing your questions. I did send you some questions in advance. So I hope one, you asked those questions and two, if they were good questions, you gave me the credit for them. Yes, uh, I did, but I did not give you the credit for them. Of course, of course. Um, yes, the interview was great. Ash is an awesome talker. He really knows how to, you know, put things forward. Like I'm not a good talker, even though we're running on a podcast or we're doing a podcast. I do not consider myself a good talker. But Ash just like took it and just brought it to another level. So it was a really fun interview. I've also been very much of an admirer of him over the years when I was building the channel that I was starting on, I was literally copying what they were doing <laughs> yeah. and making sure that we were doing the same thing. So yes, it was, it was a great honor. He came to the office and just right away started talking and giving so many good insights. So enjoy the interview. Amazing. Before we start the interview, we must say thank you to our sponsor who are... TubeBuddy. TubeBuddy is the ultimate YouTube channel and YouTube network optimizing tool. What does TubeBuddy do for you, Tom? Uh, for me, it's all about efficiency. So the main, but well, there's a, a million ways you can use the tools, absolutely jam-packed full of features. But for me, it's all about working with a, a network of channels at scale. And for me, the most efficient tool for me is the kind of upload default profiles. So with my keyword research system and the kind of metadata system that we spoke about in episode five, mm -hmm. uh, check that out if you haven't listened to it. I have a very kind of copy and paste system and copy and pasting is pretty efficient. But having all of that stuff pre-populated when I upload a new video is just like gold dust. And, you know, I can press a button and 80% of my optimization is done for me. And then I just sprinkle a little bit of uh, magic audience development dust on the top of that and we're ready to go. So can't recommend the tool enough. And if you are not using TubeBuddy yet, uh, and especially if you're using multiple channels, you can get a unique discount which is exclusive to video insiders which you can find at videoinsiders.fm forward slash tubebuddy thank you tubebuddy so let's roll the interview and i'll be back 
after I've listened to it to ask any extra questions I've got and put a bow on what I'm assuming is an amazing interview. So today is our first ever Video Insiders guest. And the person that we have uh, here is, I'm going to mess this up. So I know you're used to this, but Ashkan Karbas Frushen. Close enough. Close good. enough. No, very good. All right. You cool. get an A minus. I, I practiced. <laughs> I honestly practiced. So Ashkan uh, is the founder of CEO of Watch Mojo, one of the biggest YouTube independent YouTube channels out there. Right. Uh, as of today, I saw that you're about to hit 20 million this week. 20 I think probably February 26th. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So close. You're looking at that social blade yeah. thing. <laughs> 12 billion views. 82nd subscriber worldwide. 42nd in terms of video rank, rank, right? So the podcast here is not about how to optimize, right? It's more about like the story and, and the, the business behind it, right? As my experience building YouTube channels, when I was at Just for Laughs, I was honestly copying you, <laughs> right? So I was looking at what Majwajo was doing and I was like, we need to make lists. And then next thing you know, we were doing lists and it, it worked great for us. Some of the questions that... I guess I want to start with is, you know, what would you advise anybody that's trying to create a YouTube channel these days with fair use type of content? And the reason also I ask is because my wife, who is not a YouTuber, but she makes YouTube videos, her number one video every month, every day she gets questions is because of a video about copyright. Mm -hmm. And everybody's always asking about that. I help her with the comments and yeah. I always tell them, it's like, don't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's such a complex question and i'm yeah. gonna i'm very transparent yep. right so it's funny the name of this podcast is video insider i wrote a video insider column for media post i think from like 2009 to 2013 ish called the video insider um and you know i've always been a i love writing and so not to plug my third book but in my third book uh tenure overnight success we actually like there's a considerable portion of that that talks about copyright, mm -hmm. that talks about fair use, which I'm going to get into in a second. And then it also talks about the, the list format. And whenever people kind of are quick to kind of maybe just to be, you know, polite or compliment us, they'll say, ooh, Watch Mojo invented top 10 lists. I'm like, hold on, hold on. I'm like, we did not invent top 10 lists. You had Dave Letterman, you had Wayne's World, you had Moses and the Ten Commandments. <laughs> we, we, maybe we, we fine-tuned it, we mastered it. Mm -hmm. uh, so your question about fair use and what advice I would give is, look, whether you're talking about fair use or whether you're talking about list format, it's a means to an end. So realistically, and I'm going to get into it, but if somebody came to me right now and said, we're going to do a fair use channel using lists, I'd say, sure, go for it. We don't have a monopoly on that. We're not the Fine Brothers. That's mm -hmm. not a jab, but like they tried to find the, the trademark a format, which kind of doesn't really make sense. But I would say, what are you trying to get out of it? And the reason for that is I grew up, as much as I wrote essays and I wrote many, many columns, I also was very passionate about lists. And I kind of viewed it as like the art and science of coming up with lists. And it's possible that I could have done lists where which would have been talking head format or style. Mm -hmm. The thing that made sense for us was we actually wasn't just like fair use and copyright. It was we had relationships with rights holders that went back to the very first videos that we did. And the very first videos that we did, sure, they included fashion shows, fashion tips, makeup, travel, cooking recipes. But we were also doing lists, right? Mm -hmm. So for us, 
it was this trajectory, this ongoing kind of recipe that we were trying to master from 2006 when we launched to 2012, when upon being turned down by the 100th venture capitalist, I was sitting in Madison Square Park, and one of my friends and advisors, Jim Conley, turned to me and said, are you really going to pivot and become a beauty, fashion, and style publisher? Because that's what this inv investor wants to fund. I said, look at me. Obviously, I know why you would think I would go into beauty and fashion, but I said, no. I said, I don't have the passion for that. If we have to focus and narrow our, our uh, editorial, we're going to do top 10 lists using clips with voiceover because there's two things YouTube doesn't need, and that's another MCN or another vlogger. Mm -hmm. But in 2011 or 12, nobody was doing this. So we decided to go into lists and rely on clips because we could also rely on the relationships we had with record labels and movie studios so that if the shit hit the fan, we could go to them and say, look, you guys are asking us to promote you. This is what we do. We mash up B-roll. What did you think we were going to do? But this was before Content ID. And this was before YouTube became battleground for like, you know, the, the premier monetization platform. Yeah. So when we started... I really viewed it, and, and this isn't BS, I really viewed it as fair use is an extension of um, freedom of media, freedom of expression. If we're going to do top 10 reasons why DC and the Batman franchise is bad on you know the teenager segment because mm -hmm. it drives them crazy and they jam pens into each other's heads, DC cannot come and censor us. Because that's freedom of expression. Yep. It's a you know sociology, anthropology piece, or whatever. So the fact that we're doing top ten reasons why Batman is awesome and why the Joker is a badass guy, like ultimately positive commentary, shouldn't matter. So if you actually study copyright law, then you actually go through like how fair use came to be, and that's when you start to get the irony of ironies, which is fair use. And the exemptions, the four tests of fair use, are almost like a parallel to the four safe harbors of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which YouTube and Facebook and Yahoo and Google and all these companies have used to build businesses. So when you actually get into it, you realize, hey, if you are willing to kind of get into that occasional dropping of the gloves and explaining how fair use and copyright works, you can possibly build a business, but you got to be okay with waking up every day with either a cease and desist and a claim or a takedown, which isn't for everybody, you know, which is ultimately the main takeaway, which is starting a YouTube channel, starting a business, being an entrepreneur and all that isn't for everybody. Yeah. But so my, my biggest tip is what is it you're passionate about? Because it's going to take you a very long time. So you're going to have to create a lot of lists. Do you have the creative capacity to create a lot of lists? And if you're going to do something based on cl uh, clips that are third party, you're going to have to deal with fair use. So if content creation is a means to an end because you want to be a YouTuber, you want to build a business, you should probably think more of like where the puck is going, to quote Wayne Gretzky, and say, hey, the list market is pretty competitive and pretty cluttered now, but what do I think is going to be the next format, whether it's Let's Play, unboxing, lists, vloggers, do it yourself. There's yeah. probably an up and coming vertical that I would actually urge creators to look for. Yeah, that's essentially the way I sort of recommend anybody is it's the same way. I would assume you've had this question to asked to you many times at this point. To the point where I wrote a book and I wrote articles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome. So how do you feel about this all this Prop 13 stuff happening? Sure. Right? I mean, look, we are based in Canada, although we are a global business. Our main audience is the UK, uh, is the US, sorry. And then the second one is Mexico and UK and, and Canada. But so 
In Canada, fair use, according to a 2004 Supreme Court case, is not just a defense. It's actually a part of user rights. Like, if you want to do top 10 Nickelback songs, the Supreme Court has said, go eat your heart out and do a top 10 Nickelback songs. And I know you really want to do top 10 Nickelback songs. Um, so that's very different, right? But but in certain countries like Germany or France or even Japan and many others, this kind of like Anglo-Saxon concept of fair use or fair dealing does not necessarily exist in the same way. So... On the other side, you got platforms like Google, Facebook, YouTube that are global platforms. So there's clearly this friction, right? So the first time that I heard of Article 13 and Article 11, but Article 11 doesn't really apply to, no. to this conversation as much. The first time I heard of Article 13, I said, you know, it's kind of ironic that a continent like Europe, who should learn from history, would adopt regulations that seemingly at the face value are protecting uh, copyright, but in fact will be used as censorship tools, right? So if there was somebody circa Italy, Germany, Spain, where extreme regimes have come to power, you are basically saying that you are on the side if you vote for Article 13 to give the power to censor, even before a video is published, if you think about it, uh, certain pieces of commentary and criticism and news and information, which I would hope that the EU would think twice about. The problem is it's never really framed in that bigger kind of lens. It's a lot about, oh, well, media, copyright and newspapers and traditional media companies preserve. Now, what I find really interesting is like even Germany, that doesn't even necessarily have fair use the way we have fair use in North America, actually is siding against the nays right now. That's the last I read as of like we're going to air as we're recording this. But ultimately, look, I think I think as a as a content creator, as an entrepreneur and executive, I'm actually very pragmatic about it. I think Watch Mojo's global strategy, we're now in 30 international editions, we reach 150 million consumers, uh, unique viewers a month. Our strategy was initially to localize our bread and butter content, the list using clips. There's no reason why, even if it passes and we can't do that, instead of just hitting our wall, okay, so maybe in Germany, it's a talking head host that talks about Bundesliga. Yeah, you know, just maybe it's a couple around. people who are telling you like why they think, you know, a certain artist is going to be good or not. Maybe we get into scripted, right? Yeah. So, I think as an entrepreneur, you always wake up paranoid. You're always crazy. You're always wondering. And and like I've learned, you know, 13 years doing this, and my wife and I started the business, which I think you have a <laughs> sensitivity towards. Um, so I always, I, I sometimes just go, okay. Are we really now getting paranoid and a bit crazy about something that may not even happen, right? So yeah. I, I in this Article 13 framework, I go, look, if this passes, the Googles of the world, the YouTubes of the world, the Facebooks have much bigger problems. This is one time when being a fly on their butt is a good thing. Yeah. I'm like, let them sort it, and then we'll make a decision. But it's not like Germany is a big market for us, right? Yeah. It's not like, you know, sure, I would love to publish our top 10 Nickelback video in Germany, <laughs> but... Uh, they'll do better. They'll do better in Germany, yeah. If they like David Hasselhoff, yeah. they'll like it definitely. It definitely feels like it's an old media thinking of like... And, and one of my biggest frustrations being in this world is I've worked in old media trying to bring them to this media. It's, it's all about like education and not understanding what how to use your content online right how to claim it right how to how to use content id how to protect your your brand right that's been the fight that i've done 
two or three times at this point. And to this day, I meet producers, content creators. When I say content creators, I'm talking about like analog content creators, right? Who have absolutely no idea how their, their content is being you know, pirated, how they have the power to control it. I think one of the, the, the ways I always sort of describe it is, I learned this when I was doing pay-per-click ads you know, many, many years ago, is that Google just gives you tools, mm-hmm. right? They just give you tools. And the, the world of creators, the world of t- TV production companies, they like to be served, mm. right? They like, everybody takes care of everything for them, right? But Google and Facebook, they're not those type of companies. There's type of companies that give you tools, figure them out, you can use them to your advantage, but traditional people just don't don't uh, see it that way. You touched on three points uh, related, but actually very different and all fascinating. So one, to your first point, look at the WWE. That's a company that embraced it. There was a time when we were, if you sort, you mentioned Social Blade. I was actually, when I said the 26, I just looked at our daily ads and I estimated. But if you look at Social Blade and you sort by all-time views and all-time subs, we are now like about 25th. Yeah. which is not bad. There's only 24 channels more. And that's more that more people are on YouTube using it. But a few years ago, in 2014, we were the seventh largest that year. But around that time, there was only nine, eight or nine channels bigger than us in terms of subs and views. And we were neck to neck at the time with WWE. Now, WWE is adding like hundreds of videos a week and they got this global franchise, but they get full marks for embracing YouTube. They could have totally been the poster child, especially in the context of them launching their SVOD of saying, we're just going to take everything down. But they kind of said, no, 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 we're going to claim it. And they were very aggressive. I mean, everything was like a suplex with them. But <laughs> but my point is they at least got it. So they're like a case study of, uh, and you know, props to them. Now, second, um, you talk about Google and Facebook. So yeah, I think fundamentally, and that the, the, the through line with media and content is just that, that Google... And Facebook, that's the Bay Area thinking. They don't like humans. They don't like things that are, they don't like content. Uh, I'm obviously adding some mustard. I'm yes. not saying they're going to nuke human, humanity, but they love things that scale. They like software, right? They don't want to deal with humans. And I think it's like with YouTube, Google reluctantly got into uh, that business. So yeah, for them, I think it's less about just that they like to do tools. They just don't want to deal with humans. They're, yeah. they're introverts that are like, we're going to do our own thing. And great, these are the tools we, we think we have all the answers, use it. Now, the difference between Google and Facebook, who you could argue both are giving you this platform and tools is, I think Google and, and how it feeds into content partners and partnerships, Google fundamentally, because of the AdSense revenue share, where they're like, hey, put our ads on your website, yeah. we'll give you money. They've Their pedigree and DNA is all about sharing revenue. Whereas Facebook built a system where everybody's paying Mark Zuckerberg for reach. Why would they turn around and start paying people? They will never do that. Like, And I think that was... Jonah at BuzzFeed gets a lot of credit for many things, but that was, I think, one of his mistakes was him thinking that, oh, Mark Zuckerberg will just do the right thing and pay us. Doesn't make sense. Third and last point you brought up, traditional media companies, I used to say, you know, the the future Viacom is Viacom. I was like, they have the opportunity to get it right. And I think Viacom right now with that management team, they have the right cadence. I think they're going to probably figure it out. But ultimately, what I'm now realizing more and more, and I have so many meetings with traditional media companies, like trying to, you know, answering questions, asking questions, trying to figure out, like, what can we learn from them, what they can learn from us. I do think, and I hate to say this, I don't want to be those doomsday guys, but I do think that 99.9%, excluding, like, the Disneys that have just such awesome IP, who, like, by somewhere or another will just survive, like, the nuclear winter. I think most traditional media companies, they will ultimately crater through a combination of cost structure, inefficiency, and fat that will just suffocate them. And they won't be able to quickly enough 
they won't be agile enough to kind of cross to the other line as audiences move to digital. They will just not make that transition. And part of it is, to your first two points, they don't use the tools and they don't embrace digital. Yeah, it's, that's I, you couldn't have said it better. It's it's a it's basically what I've seen, uh, you know, keep keep happening. And it's like this slow, slow burn, right? The money's still good, so everybody's like, hey, you know, keep it going. I mean, the thing with the money is the money does follow the audience, so yeah. that you don't. I mean, you need to like, you know, those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it. To really understand where things go, you got to care about history, right? Yeah. So like, the history of media has always been about that. And I think what's going to happen with TV is it'll just be fairly profound in that. It's going to be good, good, good until the economics so don't support it. If you take Warren Buffett's quote, you don't know who's swimming naked till the tide goes down. That's what's going to happen. At some point, somebody, some advertisers are going to be like, wait a second, why are we paying you this much money when there's no audience and that audience is old? Like if you've driven a Cadillac all your life and you're a 65 year old watching TV, I got news for you. You're not going to show up and go buy another car. No. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think that's where it's going to hit. But right now, they're fine. And well, we'll I, think, I think one of the interesting sort of like ways we're being trained to watch TV nowadays is the Netflix generation, right? We're educating our kids and, you know, the generation behind us, because we're like in our 40s at this point, to watch TV without commercials. Yeah. Right? And then I um, keep thinking, it was like, where are brands going to go when everybody does not want to deal with a commercial? I know whenever I go to my parents' house and they still have traditional cable, I'm like, oh, my God, this is unbearable to deal with, right? And My kids lose their mind when they see an ad that's not skippable. It's crazy. And I'm like, they're like, do something. I'm like, I'm not that powerful. I can't do anything. <laughs> So, okay, look, I feel like Netflix is already kind of laying that foundation with the promos, which you could argue are either going to be promos for them or eventually ads. But that's why I still think that Netflix is evolutionary because they're basically taking content that we've been used to, TV-like content, theatrical-like content, and just putting it online. And like the user experience is different because you get to watch what you want, more or less. Yeah. I feel YouTube is revolutionary for that reason. I feel YouTube has changed the definition of what a celebrity is. It's changed the optics of what quality is. It's actually through TrueView, which is like scorched earth. It changed all the rules. Like it basically killed all their comp competition. But I feel with TrueView and skippable ads, that's really the game changer. Yeah. That's the killer app because consumers now are expecting to be able to control not just programming, yeah. but ads. So, yeah, I think, um, I don't know. I mean, maybe that's why, as much as you say, the the, the so-called death of the 30-second ad, maybe that's why branded content, once people figure it out, is the key. Mm -hmm. Because if, if you're an eight-year-old that doesn't really want to sit through ads you might also become kind of conditioned to say, oh, if there is a travel show on London and it's actually brought to you by British Airways, mm -hmm. I can live with that. But I won't sit through a 30-second British Airways ad. For me, again, this is sort of the model of our thinking and our agency, the way we think, is like we want to turn brands into influencers, right? And influencer is a bad thing to call, but like, you know, whenever I'm shopping for something, I should be able to find pieces of content by the brand that tell me what the hell the product does, right? How does it work? How does it come out of the box? Why is everybody so focused on the branding side of things, right? And, and that's one of the, the, my hugest frustration when it comes to marketing. That's when I go like, I want to pull my hair out because we're seeing case studies with our clients where you're know, like, hey, they spent zero money in branded marketing, but they put it all into educational content that 
does not sell, just tells them the landscape. Yeah. I believe there's space for both. No, there's space for both. I think it's just the, if you create, I mean, back in the day, you've heard that line, like, oh, you create an ad, you call ABC, NBC, CBS, you reach 80% of Americans. Yep. Whereas like branded content, it's like your storytelling. You got to keep them coming. So that's, yep. I think, still a bit of a you know lift for some. Um, you know, it's funny, you mentioned influencers. I think in like 10, 15 years, the word, the term influencer will be like the cyber cyberspace, you know, the information superhighway. It'll just be a word that I think will probably get rid of yes. our lexicon. I think it's already tired. We're no, already it's, feeling it's up it. there. I mean, yeah, I think it's due for, especially after the fire festival yeah. and all that. I think it's it's on it's on its last legs. I remember when I was at Just for Laughs and we were like, okay, how do we grow this? Uh, we found a way to grow beyond the English speaking market. Mm -hmm. Our way of doing this is basically we crowdsourced. Our fans were such fans and we're like, hey, do you want to help us translate these videos for mm, us, yeah. right? And the next thing you know, we got, you know, Just for Laughs Italia, Just mm -hmm. for Laughs Spain and all that sort of stuff. And they did their own thing, right? How do you guys, how do you manage this? So by the way, I'm wondering if I should drop a, not a scoop, but like ooh, something ooh, ooh. I've never said ever before publicly, by ooh, the way. Ooh. Hold on, I'll, I'll come to that in a second. So yeah, I mean, look, I lived in Madrid when I was five. So I always had like an attachment to like, you know, Spanish speaking, um, you know, the world basically. And then traveling, you know, like we all do when you live in Canada to, you know, the Cancuns and the Havanas and the Punta Canas. <laughs> yeah. So I was always drawn to having a Watch Mojo Espanol, regardless of like, ooh, because of this marketing reason. I was like, we're going to have a Watch Mojo Espanol one way or another. And typical entrepreneur, problem solver, I was like, how the hell are we going to do that? Because for one, it's like, you know, clips, do you translate the clip audio, the sound bites, if it's Nirvana and you're yeah. here, you know, so there's already a the whole other layer. But so what I did was, even though I, I used to speak Spanish fluently and I don't now, I forgot it all, I kind of like, turned the model on its head where like we hired some freelancers to first translate. But then I also told very transparently, I said, this is kind of like a reality TV show of sorts where only some of you are going to get the job. We'll pay you for the test, but only some of you are going to get the job going forward. But as a part of like also compensated, you are going to rate the other freelancers. Whoa. So you're going to give me feedback. I'm kind of crowdsourcing in terms of the, the tone. And I kind of already knew that like, for example, Colombian and Venezuelan are seen as more neutral. You're not going to have Castilian Madrid Spanish and you're not going to have like... You know, if you I play soccer with Chileans, I guarantee you, if you if you speak if you have a Chilean dialect, mm -hmm. you know the dude in Mexico City isn't gonna necessarily you know hear it as easily as you might think, right? But in the end, it was like a self fulfilling prophecy. The biggest market in Latin America is Mexico, and that's really our biggest market in Latin America. And we have a huge watch mundo español. But initially, it was like a very much like a problem solving. How do I leverage the means and the tools that are there? And we nailed it. Now, fast forward a few years. I kind of said that's a bit painful, doesn't really scale. So our international strategy is a combination of in-house people in Montreal, very cosmopolitan. Those are the most strategic ones. So like Spanish and French, we kind of brought in-house mm -hmm. uh, and a few others. But then there's some markets like whether it's uh, Hungary or Russia, which might still be big or, or just interesting to have, where we may partner with a local company. Or sometimes it's like a TV company that they just need to do this, but they don't need to produce it from scratch. And then sometimes we'll just hire like a freelancer who's really good, passionate, gets the content. And it's kind of like portfolio, right? Like it's different. It's like different strokes for different you know, Folks. markets, basically. And, and it works for us. But it's again, like when people ask me today, how come Watch Mojo never raised them a, a penny of venture capital? but can deficit finance content and is profitable, I go, because for six years we lost money. So we today reach 150 million unique viewers and we have like 5 million subscribers on Espanol. We have 2 million on Francais. 
It's because for years we were willing to do it even if there was no money. And I think if you're chasing near-term profits, everybody else sees those profits and those profits evaporate. That's economics 101. So as an entrepreneur, you have to be okay to uh, do things that you may not make money. So here's the thing that I've never told anybody. Uh oh um, So la about a year ago, we were actually very close to joining a Los Angeles-based talent agency, ICM. But uh, hold that. Oh, oh. Uh, on, on Wikipedia, it says you are. No, well, we are partnered with ICM, oh, okay. but we were going to look at you. Um, <laughs> but but no, we were going to partner with ICM to be uh, co-owners of Just for Laughs. Wow. We actually were at the altar and all that. And and for you know, I went down to D.C. when uh, Chris Silberman was at the White House dinner correspondent thing, met him and chatted a lot with them. I'm sure if, if ICM hears this, Name they're like, Ash, that's a lot of... Um, it's a lot of information you're divulging, but there's nothing here that's, that's great. It's more to say that we were very close. It would have been a transformative deal. It was part of the whole diversify, not just be YouTube. Like imagine being a truly global media company where we would have had events. And the idea was like Watch Mojo would have been this entertainment like super brand. Just for Laughs would have been like a comedy super brand. And then you would have kind of had this diversified thing that had media content. Uh, I mean, you know, Just for Laughs events, but then we would kind of like take their content strategy and like put it on steroids. Uh, but in the end, we were elbowed out because there were too many people. And I think I ICM, to their credit, realized that they ultimately needed a partner to run it. So they partnered with Avenco, which for our American listeners, that's like, imagine if Live Nation and MSG were one company. <laughs> so Avenco runs the jazz festival, but they also own the Montreal Canadiens. And Avenco and the Montreal Canadiens are already partners with Bell Media. So yeah. So we were... There was no room for us, which is fine, but, uh, you well, know. Well, you know what? No, I've never told that publicly to wow. anyone. So big, that, scoop, big, big scoop. Big scoop. A year uh, later. Yeah, to the, to the 20 people listening. <laughs> um, but also, I'm actually not really surprised because Just for Laughs is an old school company. Very right? old school. So any, anybody that came from Hollywood, they would be listening to them or traditional media. They would listen to them more than anybody else. A digital company that was created, they'd be like, oh. You know, because trust me, like even to, you know, to this day, I had coffee with X called Just for Laughs people last week. And to this day, the YouTube channels are sort of like, oh, that's that's on the side. Nobody really cares about that. I mean, look, I think it goes back to your previous point about the tools that these tech companies give and like the traditional media companies. I think, you know, innovators dilemma is a thing. And if you are these companies that generate a lot of revenue from tickets, from sales of content, from whatever, digital is still small. Right. And it's like us, like we are big on YouTube. People go, why don't you do more? on Facebook, forget the fact that Facebook is themselves trying to figure out videos still, mm -hmm. to be candid. I go, well, look, we have a good thing going on YouTube. I don't need it like my neighbor and be like, ooh, I need to do what they're doing and what they're doing. It's about solidify your base, but you know, have a model where you could still kind of expand and take risks. But look, I'm not surprised. Um, you know, anyway. So All right. That's a, that's a, so you don't have to, need to go further. You already <laughs> gave a good scoop there. Um, yeah. Speaking of the fact that you are focused on YouTube, like you're not just making money off AdSense, right? You're like, you know, obviously working with brands directly, doing uh, some branded placement, merch licensing. Yeah. So we actually, from 2006 to 12, the lights were kept on because of licensing. So we licensed our catalog to Yahoo, AOL. Uh, we were one of the first on Hulu. So what we called licensing was flat fee guarantee access to our catalog. And what we called syndication was revenue share. So like Hulu and others that went into a pot that kept the lights on. But I knew that that wouldn't take the business to like the next level. 
And when I sensed that YouTube was finally kind of monetizing properly, um, and you know, following the market, I was like, okay, connecting the dots. They bought DoubleClick. They're going to get a stack, and they have AdSense, and like I could see where things were going to go. Not that I'm Rupert Murdoch at all, but if you look at his playbook, Rupert Murdoch, when he's never the first in a market. Uh, he is the guy who, once he sees an opportunity in a marketplace, is really good at executing. So we always treated YouTube as like another platform. But as a consumer, I loved YouTube. YouTube's probably my favorite, you know, but I listen to music on YouTube. That's like my Spotify. I'm not there like following mm -hmm. your typical YouTubers. Uh, you know, I'm in the we're trenches. We're also older. So. We're older, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and then YouTube is old now. YouTube's yeah. not. I just kind of said to myself, I said, look, if the audience is on YouTube, then the economics will catch up. And we kind of deployed our forces there and, and it paid off. But we were very early, right? I yeah. mean, we've been on YouTube for a while. Um, so yeah, so a couple years ago, we made the decision Again, as, a, as an entrepreneur, you're always paranoid. And I was like, look, if, if everybody gets an ad blocker or if everybody skips ads or if everybody is on mobile and the, the ads don't load on, you know, like you mm -hmm. start going, you're like, you can't just be ad supported. So we made a decision because we at that point we had 5 million subscribers. We're now going to have 20 soon. We made a decision to start building a direct sales force. But what I call it in quotation mark is smart scale, meaning you need two, three people to serve as consultants to meet brands and get them to commit to doing some kind of test and then growing it. What I didn't want to do was what Machinima did, which was like, we're going to compete with YouTube. We're going to hire 42 salespeople, go out there and sell media and try to out YouTube YouTube. I got news for you. <laughs> you know, I say uh, online video is the Afghanistan of the media space, meaning everybody goes in confidently and they come out bloody and that <laughs> war, you know. Um, yeah, so I do. Uh, the other line I use today that people liked is I said, it's probably easier to work for Donald Trump than Mark Zuckerberg because oh. every day, no, but just every day there's like a new thing. And no, because Facebook is not a video platform, right? Yeah. So I think for video and content producers, they have to realize that. Whereas YouTube, they make sudden moves, but those sudden moves are like drops in the water compared to Facebook when they just go like, hey, we're going to focus something else today. Anyway, so we do have a diversified revenue stream, but I don't want to lie. I mean, it's still 80, 90% YouTube AdSense. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, like one of the points when it comes to Facebook is that I feel Facebook has just like lowered the bar when it comes to the value of video, right? I think, view. I think Facebook has probably... I want to be careful of my words because I'm very critical to Facebook as much as I respect what they've built, uh, influencing elections. You know, but but like, look, I feel like, put it to you this way, YouTube will punch you in the gut and you're like, oh, and you pick up the pieces, wipe the tears and you move forward. Facebook will stab you in the back, but not because they even care about you. They don't even see you. Mm -hmm. It's just, they don't care. It's a very different thinking, right? Um, I think what Facebook ultimately has done is... YouTube is still an organic audience. YouTube is still a real reach. Click to play. Click right? to play. If you game it, there's this anti-spam. There's a genius with like a IQ of 7,000 <laughs> that is trying to stay ahead of the black hat stuff. Facebook ultimately is more about arbitrage. It's more about how can I basically do something at a penny, sell it at four, and doing that at scale. And that basically works. It's quick to scale, but it's not sustainable. So it's not just that they've cheapened the view. I think they've probably also reduced the value of actually a follower and a fan and a user. And I think that's more because they've been so successful at yeah. scaling. And I think eventually they'll, they'll kind of address that. And, and I think, you know, I don't want to pretend like I'm sitting there discussing policy and strategy with them, but you know, all I could say is I think they realize finally 
that, yeah, with great power comes great responsibility. And I'm not saying that it's reflected yet, but I think they at least understand that. Whereas like a year or two ago, I think they were like, meh, it's not our big, it's not, you know, like Russians hacking elections. Yeah, I don't think that's even the case. That's, that's crazy talk. I think now they're like, hey, if there's even a chance of that happening, we have to kind of look into it. Yeah, I also think their they, their approach towards you know creating influencers and creators is again sort of lowering a bar, right? When you think about like you know a YouTuber, a YouTuber has to put the work in, right? And they have to create content, they have to edit, they have to learn all that stuff, and it takes a year to whatever, right? When an Instagrammer can become famous in like two three months. And then all of a sudden, everybody's an Instagram star, right? Okay, well, then what's the value now, right? Yeah, and I mean, look at like the biggest, like PewDiePie. PewDiePie, let's say 2015, he's on the cover of Variety. That's when he's like li literally riding it high, riding high. But he probably started in 2010. Yeah. Like we started way earlier. By the time people were like, wow, Watch Mojo is huge, let's say. I mean, I think we're the unknown scrappy startup nobody knows. But I mean, we're big, right? Yeah. But we started years before. So I think you're right that YouTube... You can't really fake it. I think if you actually are like, regardless of like the value of a subscriber and that we get it, YouTube doesn't send, an, you know, and I actually put myself in their shoes. I think that's logical. Because yeah. if you subscribe to a hundred channels and they all publish a video a day, you don't want a hundred notifications. I did the mistake of clicking the bell on many, many, many yeah, channels. But do you want to get notified no, every time? No, I've been, I've been unclicking bells clicking lately. Bell. For whom the bell doesn't toll. Uh, but but I think ultimately, neither company is perfect, but I feel YouTube is closer at eventually getting things right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it definitely feels that way as well. Algorithms, how do you feel about them? I mean, look, it's great to be all badass and be like, man, I don't care about the algorithm, but that's like saying I don't care about oxygen or I don't <laughs> care about gravity. You still have to kind of understand that it's, it's, it's something that could kill you if you don't get it. Um, I think that you're better off to focus on good quality, and you never want to insult your audience's intelligence because the fundamental resource that is the most precious in life, it's cliche, is time, right? Time is the one thing you can never get back. You can lose money, make it up. You could invest in money and, you know, make more and make less. But time is the one thing that actually does, you know, go away. So I've always said before even the algorithm was a thing, I was like, same thing. Like, if this is top 10 skyscrapers, it's top 10 skyscrapers. It's yeah. not top 10 phallic objects you can't believe are growing from the ground. <laughs> That's, you know, the one will get the clicks, but one won't get the watch time. Yeah. So I feel the algorithm is something you should understand how it works like gravity. Like, I'm not going to jump out of this window, second floor, because bad things will happen. But I don't need to necessarily know two things. I don't need to be like, how does this exactly work? I just need to know what the outcome is if I ignore it. And two, um, yeah, don't try to game it. You're yeah. not gonna game, you're not gonna game gravity. Yeah. You will die. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um you're launching a new channel today. Um, and I take it this is almost like a press tour. <laughs> yeah, yes and no. I mean, look, I'm doing a couple of interviews just because I think we are hitting 20 million subscribers, and um, you know, January 13th is our anniversary that's passed now it's yeah. a month away i think there's there's a lot of people that are like oh interesting story in the yeah. wake of like buzzfeed and vice or you know falling from the sky mm -hmm. here's this other story that's just coming along this i think is is it coincidence correlation or cause it's probably all of the above yes. so what is entrepreneurship ultimately i think entrepreneurship is probably you know that saying, it's living a few years of your life the way no one wants to, to live the rest of your life the way no one can. 
or very few can. Great line. I didn't invent it. But I, if I had to kind of like distill entrepreneurship, I think it's like you ultimately want to be a bit more in control of your life. Yes. Right? But the reality is entrepreneurship is a paradox. Like you think you're independent, but you're not, right? So the same way that in the corporate world, you had corporations for hundreds of years, but you would say that the 20th century was the century where we start to look at management of business. How do corporations run? What is an executive? And at the end of that decade, you had a lot of people that said, I don't want to be part of this rat race. Mm -hmm. You're like, why am I killing myself to try to please shareholders or mm -hmm. my boss who will throw me off the bus sooner than you can even dream? So I feel like entrepreneurship has been around forever. And in the last 30 to 40 years, it's become a thing. But 30, 40 years ago, business was still like not really pop culture and entrepreneurship was fringe. Today, people don't grow up to be doctors or lawyers. They don't want to be hedge fund managers or venture capitalists or investment bankers. They look at not only Richard Branson, they look at Mark Zuckerberg and Mark Cuban, and they want to be an entrepreneurship. The problem is, and I don't think it's through malice, there's no playbook, right? So entrepreneurship is a means to an end. And I think that end is, imagine a pyramid where you have work, life, and play. And you never really get balance between, let alone two, forget three, it's about trying to striving for that equilibrium so that in the end you're putting, it's like, it makes sense, yeah. right? So I just felt like, okay, yes, I've had a lot of experiences. I've made a lot of mistakes. I've learned a lot. When I would have conversations with people, there was a lot of cliches. Like you go to the extreme, you got to kill yourself, hustle porn. And you're like, that's not the way to go. But you also hear everybody's an entrepreneur. I got news for you. Not everybody's an entrepreneur. No. Maybe the same way that everybody's got to sell, but not everybody's a salesperson. I think nowadays with side hustle, gig economy, people not working for corporations all their lives, you probably just need to be entrepreneurial. So this is kind of like a playbook. And it's kind of like, you know, a different take on most of what you hear about it. Um, and it's something I'm very passionate about, right? I mean, it's uh, I'm kind of like an entrepreneur at heart. Yeah. And I just got to a point where Watch Mojo was kind of like doing well. It's an entertainment brand. And frankly, for Watch Mojo to really grow, I sometimes got to get out of its way. Whereas with entrepreneurship, I felt like it was something that was challenging, new, I was passionate about, the timing was right. You look at not just YouTube, that more and more like young audiences look for videos in that bucket on YouTube, but you look at LinkedIn. Yeah. LinkedIn today reminds me a lot of YouTube in 2006. A lot really? of UGC. I feel, well, I feel it reminds me more of Facebook. Look, I think, okay, the reason why it reminds you rightfully of Facebook is that's the Bay Area sensitivity coming through where it's like this very, we have the answer. It's like, you know, we don't like humans. We want things to scale. UGC. The first time I talked to YouTube, there was a software engineer who was like, I'm in charge of sales here and we're going to get you $20 CPMs. I swear to you, I was laughing, going like, <laughs> you're not going to get us $20 CPMs. You are clueless. You're very smart, but you don't get media and you definitely don't get content. I think LinkedIn remains to be seen if it goes the way of MySpace when mm -hmm. it comes to video, Facebook or YouTube. It will be something else. Um, but there, there's something there, but it's not for everybody. Yeah. You know, one of the concepts that when I talk to analysts, investors, staff, I, I say, you know how in, in, mark, in, um, in, in the startup world, you have this concept of product market fit. Mm -hmm. Everybody's obsessed with product market fit or lean startup, these concepts. But I go, I think with video, you'll, you do have to look at things in terms of format platform fit. So like if, if we kind of caught lightning in a bottle, top 10 list, YouTube made a lot of sense. Um, so I view as like this new brand called Context TV. It's about putting work in the context of your life. Um, I view Context, and it's also a play on my fourth book, 
Context is King, which I've not yet written, but I started to doodle and think about. Long story short. Um, so I think it's all about that would be really good. And I could see it growing quite a bit on LinkedIn. Yeah, I definitely see it as a sensible, you know, show for people to start bringing back to, down to earth, right? Like, like I see a certain person with the initials GV being all about hustle and let's go and blah blah blah. And then I heard JV. I was like, who's no, that? But yeah, 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 GV. Yeah, yeah. And and you know, I won't name him because I don't want to give him free free any <laughs> I more don't think exposure. He needs. <laughs> and exactly, he doesn't need. And at the end, and then I see I see other people doing the same thing, right? And having these successful agencies. And I think there's another guy in the UK that's all about, you know, whatever the hustle. And, you know, as somebody who's been an entrepreneur for literally less than a year, who, as we were talking off air, like I'm still in deer headlights mode where every day I'm like, what the hell am I doing? But a true entrepreneur does see the good in everything and everyone. So with Gary, Gary, yeah. <laughs> v, to be fair, look, here's a guy who his it's true. He, he got like his dad who worked really hard, built a business. He could have taken that and drank himself into oblivion or True. partied into, you know, notoriety. You got to give the guy credit for at least early on taking it to the next level. Now, people do get overexposed in everything. So I think what you're seeing with him is this kind of like extreme and there will be a regression to the mean where he himself will be like, I need to kind of scale back, like pare back a bit because I'm now a target or, and I don't say it disrespectfully, I give him credit. Yeah. He, he might at some point feel like, hey, if I become a, a joke or a punchline, scale back. But he's built interesting things. He's put himself out there, which at the, end of the, at the end of the day, an entrepreneur, there's a line from a Winston Churchill speech. It's like the portion is called the man in the arena. I forgot what the speech is called, but it's about, you got to put yourself out there. Like I, I have references on and on and on. I get people who come to me today and they're like, Ash, I always believed in you, buddy. And I'm like, really? <laughs> I remember here, you're like, good luck with that business in quotation marks, pal. So the one thing about Gary and many others is I feel like it's more, you're so in the trenches that you just sometimes need to take a step back, right? So that's where and why I got to a point it has nothing to do with porn hustle or anything. I just got to a point that personally, in terms of my own sanity, I realized that between building a business on YouTube, you hear about burner create, uh, burner, burnout, burnout, creator, burnout, yeah. uh, creator burnout. Creator burnout. So I may not be like a vlogger influencer in that sense. And there's a reason why I didn't build Watch Ash or Ash Mojo, not just because nobody would watch that, but because I was like, I want to build a company where I could kind of disappear for a while and it doesn't die type of thing. But I still have 70 employees, 100 plus, including freelancers. And when you think of Adpocalypse, when you think of copyright, I still have to deal with that. So I just got to a point where, for me, Context TV was more about just my sanity, where I could kind of make take a step back from entrepreneurship and talk about mistakes, talk about errors, make fun of the insanity of, of you know what an entrepreneur is, is all about. Um, and it almost, almost becomes therapeutic, but it's also because I realized the same way that like that executive said, why am I killing myself to try to make the other guy happy? I feel like entrepreneurs need a little bit of a, hey, you are missing the point. <laughs> like there's a means to an end. You're on the wrong track. And unless you are that 0.1% who owns a tiny fraction dealing with the crossfire of investors and boards and employees who builds a unicorn. And like for everyone PewDiePie, there's a gazillion gamers who didn't go anywhere. You probably have a saner, more risk adjusted bet to be an entrepreneur, to live the life that others will not put up with for a couple of years, 
to be able then to live for the rest of your life like others can't. And that's what I think Context TV is going to do. It's like, here's a bunch of advice. Here's a bunch of tools. And it's not just going to be a Q&A or whatever. Lord knows I could talk forever. <laughs> I think it's more like we're going to apply some of like the best practices that Watch Mojo had. But because YouTube is all about super serving and niche and deeper engagement, whereas before we might have done like top 10 entrepreneurs of the decade, that kind of video will go on Context TV, but it'll just bring a lot of other things that wouldn't make sense to do on Watch Mojo. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely feels, uh, you know, I was watching the first episode before before you came and I was like, oh, okay, it just totally makes sense. And it's, you know, it feels like it's it's definitely your passion because I've been following you on Twitter. I've been following you on, you, you see me Poor like- you. you see, <laughs> I avoid the politics stuff, but uh, you know, I see, I see the post, the long post that you do on LinkedIn, and you're obviously very passionate. And so you're one of the most vocal sort of CEOs I know who's literally putting it out there all the time, right? I don't know if I should say thank you, but but it's funny <laughs> because people say, but to me, I go, that's normal. Yeah. That's like the difference between like a media company, traditional and new, yeah. called about embracing and the tools. To me, I would like CEOs would pay to get the kind of uh, feedback and expo but mainly feedback forget ex of course the exposure but yeah. just the feedback like i put something out there you know like i'm not saying this to be the number of people that i've met over my career who are like i read something that you wrote on TechCrunch years ago or media posts and linkedin is just an extension of that yeah. right so to me it's kind of normal but i also realize like well i like to write i like to talk i like to discuss i'm also a good listener even though people just think i talk <laughs> um but no i just view it as it's like if you're going to be a successful executive you got to do what's natural to you. If you're not like a public speaker, don't speak. If you're not a writer, don't write. But there's probably things that you're really good at and you should just double down on those things. Great. Well, again, thank you very much. I think literally in the last 10 years of us sort of like knowing each other through social media, I think uh, this is like the second time it's we've met. It's the second time we met. The first time we met was actually incidentally uh, three years ago in Toronto when we got the 10 million plaque and it's That's funny now i'm here on the verge of 20 million subscribers do, are they, uh, they, they don't they give you do, like a they, second they plaque they're, they're like they're done they're that's it <laughs> the number of child labor that they would have to put to use to go extract something for 20 million i'm kidding you two please don't shut down our channel <laughs> awesome man thank you very much thank you Wow, Carlos, you said that Ash was a great talker, but I've got to give you props. I think you did a great job of your first uh, Video Insiders interview. Uh, I'm going to try my hand at some future interviews. So let us know what you thought about the interview at Video Insiders on social. And also let us know who you would like us to interview next. But I've got to ask some questions about this incredible interview. Brought back a lot of memories of watching... Uh, watch mojo growing up in the early years really just picking up some incredible momentum we actually did a couple of collaborations with uh watch mojo back in the day which is how really? i first i didn't know got that to 
yeah, got that's how I first got in contact with Ash. We did some kind of under the radar collaborations that um worked really well actually. So one thing that I have to say, first of all, I agreed with ninety nine point nine 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 percent of what Ash said. <laughs> but unfortunately the first thing I've got to bring up is the one thing I disagree with. And Ash, please tweet at us. I know you're gonna listen to this. Uh-huh. Um Ash said, make videos about what you are passionate about. And to me, this is a very common advice, but this is not advice that I can buy into, unfortunately. Why is that? My opinion is always, yes, you will have to make videos about this for like five years. So yes, you you know, you have to not go totally insane and you have to be able to have enough content to last for five, 10 years. But I don't necessarily believe that you have to be passionate about what you're making videos about to do a good job of a YouTube, YouTube channel. My theory goes a little bit along the lines of make a successful YouTube channel about something that you are expert in or an authority in, and then use that money to do what you're really passionate about. But that's a whole other subject. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I sort of agree there, but you know, at the end of the day, you got to realize that a lot of people that are growing on YouTube are not doing it as a full time. They're doing it as a hobby. So you have to be passionate about that hobby to keep it going for a couple of years until that actually makes money. If it's a hobby, then that's a totally different angle. True. You're right. If you want to use YouTube for a hobby and talk about something you're passionate and share that with the world, I applaud you. I've actually got a few things that I would love to make YouTube videos about. But in terms of running a business, I don't think that necessarily that is always the best advice. Because also, what if you're passionate about something that absolutely no one wants to watch videos about? No comment. (laughs) (laughs) You know me, Carlos, I always have to play devil's advocate. But as I say, I agreed with so much stuff that Ash said, especially the stuff that he was saying about Facebook. It's not a video platform. It's a social platform. And they're not as geared towards creators as YouTube are. Uh, that was a real highlight for me. He spoke very favorably about optimizing for the algorithm. So this is definitely uh, five gold stars for Ash for saying that because this is something that I really, really believe in as anyone who's heard me talk on any of the previous episodes or on any other platform. I'm all about optimization. Mm-hmm. And for him, with such a successful channel and set of channels, to say that, yes, you do need to optimize for the platform and you know, just making good videos is not good enough is really good vindication for my my cause, I would say. Yep. Cool. Uh, one, what was the kind of highlight for you? What was the one either insight or anecdote that really popped for you and uh <laughs> one that you'll remember and, and and pass on to others. The one that was memorable for me is obviously the the sort of like the bomb that he dropped that he was in the market to actually buy the Just for Laughs uh, YouTube channel. <laughs> I was like, what? He could have been your boss. Yeah, he could have been my boss. That would have been awesome. I would have stayed <laughs> at Just for Laughs if you would if that would have happened. Uh, no, actually, I would have come back to Just for Laughs because that happened after after I left. But uh, yeah, I think that was sort of like the whoa, awesome. You know, like it's such a small world. Obviously, you know, Watch Mojo is in Montreal. Just for Laughs is in Montreal, so it made sense that there was in that sort of relationship there, and I think there still is a relationship there. So that's to me that was a memory. Cool. I I also really loved how candid he was just generally, but in particular how he spoke about how they were trying to grow like a sales force and how they took it kind of slow and steady uh, as opposed to the kind of machinima. I think he he said they were doing it like anti-machinima. 
Yeah. Again, which harkens back to uh, an episode we did about the death of MCNs, and we spoke about how Machinima basically scaled themselves to death. So yeah. again, go back and check that episode out. But as we say, please let us know what you think about this episode. Remember to include Ash in those tweets and you can tweet him at Ashcan. Yeah, on Twitter. And also let us know who you would like us to interview on future episodes. And also maybe in the future we'll let you know who we're going to be interviewed so we can get some of your questions to our guests as well. Thanks, Ash. Oh, and also don't forget to check out his new channel, Context TV, which is all about his, what he's passionate about, uh, the, the ecosystem, talking about entrepreneurship and all that stuff. It's great content that uh, I've already subscribed to and I'm already watching regularly. Yeah. And also, uh, now that I've listened to it after you've recorded it, congratulations, Ash, for hitting... 20 million on your main Watch Mojo channel. That is a ridiculous milestone and uh, very well deserved. Yeah, exactly. T-Series and PewDiePie watch your backs. So before we go, thanks again to our sponsor, TubeBuddy. And remember, you can get that unique discount for Video Insiders listeners by visiting videoinsiders.fm slash TubeBuddy. Obviously, if you liked the interview and are liking the podcast, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice and leave us a review if you're using the Apple Podcasts app. Thanks, guys. And we'll see you on the next episode of Video Insiders. Boop, boop, boop.